Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that makes time and space to really think about pedagogy, teaching and learning, professional development, anything of interest to time poor but enthusiasm rich primary teachers. This week, I'm joined by Christopher Such. Hello again. And together, we'll try and answer the question how do you solve a problem like collaborative planning? Now, this one was requested by the wonderful Amy Bills on the Tadapia Discord. And if you haven't joined, use the link below this episode to get involved. I'm really looking forward to chatting collaborative planning because it's something I get to do a lot of. But first, Chris, what are you reading for? Hey, what are you reading for? This week, I read a wonderful blog from a blogger that I go back to time and again, um, an American reading researcher and someone who knows reading research as well as anyone probably, a gentleman called Timothy Shanahan. He released a blog called, or a set of two blogs, I should say, called uh, Top 10 Pet Peeves About Reading. And it's it's really wonderful. Here He's always pretty concise and sharp, but these blogs in particular really get to the point on some really knotty issues in reading research. Highly recommended. Um, well, I highly recommend his blog across the board, but these ones in particular are well worth a read. What about you, Kieran? What are you reading for? So this week I've been reading something I'm not convinced I'm on board with, but I do like to read things that challenge my thinking. And this one is the relationship between routine and non-routine problem solving and learning styles. It sort of explores Kolb's learning styles and his definition and how there might possibly be a relationship between how people solve routine and non-routine problems. I'm going to go back to it a few times, like I said, because I'm not convinced where I stand. Um, but I do like, once I saw the name, I thought, okay, I'm definitely going to download that one and have a have a really good look. Yeah, that's one that interests me as well. I think using the phrase learning styles at this point is a bold move. But I, yeah, I look forward to diving into that one myself. Yeah, it's it's, it's a 2021 paper as well. So I was quite shocked to see that that's why that sort of drew me to it. So the focus of this episode is collaborative planning. I think it makes sense to start with the sort of question that we always look at first. What What is collaborative planning? Well, this is one of these things where we might come at this at slightly different angles, and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think of collaborative planning as any kind of planning which is supportive or supported when you know two or more colleagues work together in order to get a lesson ready or get a set of learning points ready. I think, again, maybe this differs from your definition, but I would think of it as something that may include involvement from a subject leader or a member of a senior leadership team if they are that way inclined, but it doesn't have to. It can and commonly does take place just between uh, members of a the same year group or teachers who, for whatever reason, are going to be teaching the same content. What would you add to that? Not much, to be fair. Yeah, I was, I was wondering what was coming next when you said that you, you weren't sure if I would agree. But yeah, I think, you know, you've outlined either teachers working together on sort of shared outcomes for their, you know, their lessons in a given sequence, or perhaps a subject leader supporting teachers with the, the same sort of idea. And um, yeah, so I, I think those two are probably the, the two most frequent ways that we would see collaborative planning in action. I think perhaps we could consider the length of time that those involved in collaborative planning are focusing on. You know, it might be as short as a week or maybe even just a lesson, but it could equally be 
over the longer term. You know, we've talked about should teachers have to plan their curriculum from scratch together? And I think if you do have to, then collaboratively is probably the best way to do that because then you at least have someone asking questions of you and focusing, you know, bring everybody brings something different to the table in terms of how much they know about different, you know, subjects, different topics. And, and I think, yeah, in that situation. So yeah, really what we've got is a number of people working together on planning, whether that be foundation or core, over a given sequence, whether that be a, a sequence as short as one or two days, or perhaps as long as six or seven weeks. Yeah, the only reason I questioned whether there might be some disagreement was I remembered back to, I can't remember if it was the first year of my career or the second, there was a period of time where um, I was working in year six and another teacher had just qualified who I knew was also working in year six and we were both planning national curriculum maths effectively, you know, going through the order of the national curriculum. We were to an extent collaborating by sending our plans to each other and saying, oh, oh, that's interesting. Why have you done that? I mean, to an extent, it possibly, you know, it was uh, the inexperienced leading the inexperienced, but it, um, it, it, it felt um, positive at the time. Um, so I wasn't sure whether how tightly we were defining collaborative planning. I think for the purposes of this episode, it probably makes sense to talk about people who are to some extent planning together live. You know, even if they're not person person like sitting next door to each other, it could be the case that under current circumstances, you have some people planning over Zoom or this sort of thing. But yeah, it's people planning together in the moment, I guess, is what we're really talking about today. Yeah. And I think when we come to how we can get the most out of it, it's the, it's the dialogue that being in the same space, either virtual or physical, I think that's the, the main thing we should really focus on. That's certainly what I imagine. We can then also think about what is collaborative planning not? The thing that jumps out at me as something that it definitely isn't is the idea of one person planning, even if it is in the presence of another person and the other person just kind of nodding along and saying, oh, okay, yep, no, that makes sense, which can happen, particularly if one colleague is much more experienced than another. So yeah, if, as you said before, it's the discussion that we'll that I'm sure we'll talk about later, but it's the discussion that's involved in that planning that's vital. And if that discussion around... Um, ideas, purposes, representations, modeling, etc. isn't there, then it isn't really collaborative planning. It's just someone being in a room while the other while another person plans. Equally, and this is it's absolutely possible to do collaborative planning where every single thing that's going to take place in that lesson is thought through and sequenced and prepared re- resource by resource together. But I would say it doesn't have to be, perhaps. Maybe you would uh, disagree on this one. I don't know, or maybe you would agree. I think there is, there's some extent to which you can do collaborative planning, talk through all the key elements, and then say, oh, okay, this slide or this particular task, we've talked it through. We both have a, a grasp of what it's going to look like, but I'm actually going to prepare it on, you know, be it a worksheet or on a Google slide or however it may work. I guess the key thing is collaborative planning while it's something that's done together and is very supportive and full of dialogue shouldn't be a straitjacket it shouldn't be something where equally where someone goes oh okay we've planned this to the letter and I'm not sure this little bit actually works with my class but this was the decision we made and so I stick with it regardless so I think that's something that it's not as well it's not a straitjacket it's something that 
leaves room to maneuver. So if we think about the, the potential cons of collaborative planning, the amount of time that schools need to dedicate to it comes up, you know, almost top of my list. And so if we think about that scenario you described where you've got people in the same room, the, it, the time has been given to them and then it's used in a less than, what I would describe as a less than efficient way. You know, you're compounding the, um, the losses because you've lost time in the classroom, you've lost cover in other places. I don't know, you know, trying to think as a school leader, you know, I think of Lloyd who would be organizing his staff in different ways and sort of moving those pieces around the board. And then if you aren't getting the benefit, then I think, you know, you'd be hard pressed to justify why you would spend time in that kind of situation. Yeah, I, I've seen various different ways people will plan together. And I think it's avoiding, like you say, either being told this is exactly what you have to do, and then it either becomes completely different, you know, or something that's done with less sort of thought. But to your point on the sharing of the, the resourcing, one of the things I've seen are conversations happen where, say, for instance, we'll all talk about the same representation. And this is why we're going to use, you know, if we go back to a previous example in a recent episode, we're all going to use the area model, big dialogue about the area model. But then someone will go and make sure we've got the requisite equipment. It doesn't take all two, three, four people to do that. So I think you're, I think you're, you're spot on there. It's about how can we make collaborative planning? And we'll get to that in a second, work for us, but having sort of those core principles that we'll get to at the heart of it, I think. Well, that raises quite nicely the main question for this episode. How can we get the most out of collaborative planning? So like I said at the top of the episode, this, this is something I get to do quite regularly with my teachers. And so we have a three-form, a two-form, and a one-form entry school in our collaboration. And so it could be planning with one other person and acting as that year group partner, or it could be as part of a, a much bigger team. The key thing were possible, you know, and, and you described that situation where you were both very inexperienced and sort of the, the inexperienced leading the inexperienced. I would always, first and foremost, try to have someone more expert involved in the, in the collaborative planning process. So you take someone who has at least lived through the experience before with a picture of the key points in a given sequence. So if, if we talk maths, because it's me and I like to talk maths, we sit and we, we know what's going to happen or we have an idea of what's going to happen. And then we can guide our partner or the other people in the group through the process. So you've got a more expert person who then takes on the role of Sherpa you know, not necessarily giving the answers, but perhaps asking the right questions, you know, based on questions they may have been asked a year, two years previous, and then seeing where the sequence ends up. Because people will have different ideas about how things should be taught. You know, if you've got a curriculum in place, you should have a fair idea of the sequence and the, the steps that you're going to go through. But how you get to those steps will depend, like you say, precisely on the class. The, the cohort and the pedagogical models that the school will have in place, you know, and how much discussion you can have about which models to draw on and which strategies to draw on, I think will depend. But then, so you've got the expert, you've got the guide, and then you have 
lots of different options. So in, in thinking deeply about primary mathematics, I talk about how we have this almost toolkit that we can draw on. You know, do I want to explore instruction in this lesson? Do I really want to focus on the instruction? Is it the models and images that are going to be important in this part? You know, because models and images will be will be more or less useful in different situations, depending on where the pupils are in the learning sequence. You know, or do we really want to spend our time thinking about how we design tasks? You know, is variation something that we want to include here? And so the bulk of the process, in my experience, is guiding teachers through those decision-making processes. You know, so we can decide that something is more or less appropriate given the situation. You know, we may say, okay, right, well, I definitely have a group of people who probably 75% already know how to do this. So I'm really going to need to think about how I'm going to challenge those pupils because, you know, you want to try and keep the year group in the same ballpark, you know, never going to be exact. And so, yeah, people's focus will be different depending on where they are in the sequence. And so when I imagine collaborative planning, we are guiding our less experienced colleagues through those decisions. Um, and then from that, you should have an object that then they can go and enact in the classroom and hopefully will help pupils learn. Does that make sense? Makes total sense. I guess a question aligned with that is then, do you think, well, I, not it's not really a question. I would assume from that, that it's important if, for example, you are not present for a planning conversation and you know you've got this collaborative planning going on across the year groups, it's really important that the more experienced colleague knows the justification for that collaborative planning because very selfishly if i think back to my career there were points where i might have been planning in a year group and i was thinking in the back of my mind wow i could do this a lot quicker on my own and you know i i understood the justification over time but perhaps not in the first couple of weeks or the first little bit of time that you're doing it so it's really important that the experienced colleague knows exactly why the collaborative planning is happening, that they see it as an attempt to, as well as plan excellent lessons, but also to support a colleague in their professional development, which is, again, something we've talked about a great deal. So I guess part of that experience mix is knowing is the more experienced colleague really understanding the justification behind this collaborative planning model. I think that speaks to two things that I often think about. I really want to empower my teachers to be able to have the confidence, should they ever be in a situation, for instance, they need to talk to an inspector or someone who is validating the quality of their work. In a given moment, they will know both the children in their class better than anyone else. And also they will know their pedagogy, I hope, better than anyone else. And so when we're thinking about knowing why we do things, I always want my teachers to talk about the why, you know, so why do we do this? This is the reason we've made that decision. We're always talking about, like you say, if we have these options, which is the best tool for the job? Another thing that I always try and do is speak to general principles. So when I'm modeling my planning process or when I'm acting as that sort of guide, I will try and generalize to the extent that when we sort of recap on what we've done, I'll say, okay, so today we looked at, you know, this kind of behavior, this kind of behavior and that kind of behavior and these are the kind of behaviors that i really would like you to continue should i be absent from the conversation because it's not realistic with 
would essentially, you know, as Matt Swain would call a six form entry school, you know, we take these three different size schools and put them together. You can't be everywhere all the time. You know, you have to focus your attention in certain pockets, you know, so you'll plan with someone for six weeks, a, a year group for six weeks, and then you'll move to a, a different year group. And, and so, you know, everyone gets as much of their time as possible. And so I speak to general principles in terms of, okay, when we're starting a sequence, we really need to think about the models and images. So I want you to see, when I think about models and images, you know, the fishbone that I talk about at Maths Confident to an extent of research ed, you know, talked about, okay, what's the opportunity? Can I phase this site? You know, does it represent the inherent mathematical structures? So that what they see isn't just one decision. They see the, the, the reasons why I've made my decisions and then they can apply it because, you know, having recently spent a lot of time looking at the possible models and images in Key Stage 1 and Key Stage 2, there are many, many different ways that, that a school could go. And so there's no right and wrong. You know, some are more right than others, <laughs> as my previous videos <laughs> would suggest. Um, but I, I can ask my teachers, okay, when you're choosing a representation, think about do we have the time? Do we have the resources? Do, are the structures underpinned by this? You know, are we getting, you know, the clarity that we need? And so that's the kind of thinking we're thinking about when we're planning together so that those principles can be picked up and put in a different unit just as effectively. I think what's interesting there is that there's, in each of those cases, there's a even more general underlying aspect of what you're talking about, which is that you want your teachers effectively to always be thinking of the why, you know, what, why exactly, why this image, why this model, why this metaphor, why this particular method, why this task, why this order, which is, it sounds obvious, but again, thinking back to the start of my profession, that why was often implicit rather than explicit. And the more that that can be explicit in planning conversations, the better they're going to be. I was in a math planning conversation just the other day, actually, where we were talking about working out time differences. And this was a key stage one, and it was very small time differences. And it was really about familiarizing them with, with the clock, etc. And two different teachers, both right at the start of their career, were talking about how they might discuss that. One of them talking about, well, let's, you know, some kind of number line. Some were talking about, well, let, let's actually visualize that and talk about that as the movement of the hands on the clock. And regardless of where we got to in the conversation and what we decided upon, what I particularly liked about that was that they were both quite naturally going into the, okay, so why this? Why might that support my students? Why might they not be ready for this particular representation in terms of a number line? So that was, yeah, it was really, it's really nice if you can get those underlying principles linked to what you're saying as well, though. I wonder if there's an extent to which having formula is probably the wrong word, but having something akin to a formula where you say, OK, when we come to our planning conversations, we will go through roughly these steps. We will do X, Y and Z to ensure we've covered certain bases. And you might say to me now, no, this is a terrible idea. Don't do this. But something that I've tried recently in planning conversations is to say okay if we're looking at this particular learning point one of the things I really want us to do is start off by thinking about well what's the final outcome look like particularly in the variety of that outcome um, in some cases using something like test base can be valuable for that but really what's the, what's the variety of this outcome 
then how are we getting there? And along the way from our start point to this end point, what are these little chunks of understanding that I need children to have? Borrowing a phrase from, I think I used it the other week, but borrowing a phrase from a CPD I did a while back, like critical discernments, these little chunks of understanding that you know we want to divide the learning into so that we can teach in manageable steps and then blend it back together. So like I say, we, we have these, this, again, it's not quite a formula, but it's not far off where it'd say, what's our endpoint? What's our, what are our critical discernments from those? What are our potential misconceptions, which I find is the bit that's most reliant upon experience of all the parts in the planning conversations. It's the misconceptions that are most reliant on experience of all things. Um, because in some cases you just have to have taught them in short, Extending that out, do you think there's some value in having something quite structured like that in order to expedite planning conversations? As you were saying that, I was thinking about how I've been in many, many of these situations over the last five years. You know, essentially the bulk of what I've been doing is either teaching with teachers or planning with teachers. And if you take a step back, you see the same patterns appearing time and time again you know so I, I was nodding along as you were saying that because I think we can generalize the process you know just like you're saying you know we don't want a straitjacket the more expert the person who's acting as the Sherpa is the greater flexibility they can have within those situations because they can think well actually no that's not quite appropriate this time or maybe I want to focus more attention on here but I, I could say sitting down with a new teacher I see the same, you know, occurrences time and time again. And in the class, it's the same. So I think it's, you know, like when we're working with the pupils, if we have a general idea of where we want to go to and we have steps that we're going to follow through, then eventually it becomes tacit in the minds of the teachers once they do something over and over and over again, you know, because if you've taught year three for four years, how I collaboratively plan with you is going to be much different if it's your first time in, in year three or your first time in any year group. But I, I definitely do. I, I definitely do agree, you know. And the skill I think comes in identifying what's most important in those collaborative planning sessions and thinking, okay, where am I going to, you know, go back to Lloyd. Where am I going to get the greatest leverage? What behaviors can I change first? What thought processes can I change first? And then from there, you allow yourself the time to think about those really exciting, but perhaps quite a lot more difficult. You know, in, in, in recent talks, I've talked about how I think the first thing we need to nail is how we model and our exposition. You know, so modeling and exposition, if you get those down, if you have a, a standard way of being you allow yourself then the freedom because there's a higher likelihood that your pupils are going to understand what it is you're trying to teach them and then you can like you said then you can think about variation then you can think about um problem solving at the depth to which someone who's been teaching for 15 years can think about it you know because we're talking about routine and non-routine problems that's not a conversation you have within it with an early career teacher so yes i i think i'm, I'm totally with you on on that one i guess it's been hinted at and well described really but something to really emphasize then is 
what we really have to have for a planning conversation, a collaborative bit of planning to be successful is everyone in that group to have a shared grasp of final outcomes and steps to get there. And as you were saying, it has to be matched to the experience of the, the teachers involved. Another thing that you've talked there and was definitely implicit in what you said, but I'd like to make explicit is a clear understanding of what will and won't be done together in that planning conversation. Because obviously not everything is going to be done. There's still possibly some thought to be put into it. There's still some adaptations to particular aspects of a given class. So knowing in advance exactly what it is that you intend to do in that planning session in order to make it as efficient as it can be. Because I know as well as anyone, you can turn up for a planning conversation and with the best one in the world, the time flies and you think, oh, actually, we wanted to do this much and we've only planned half of it. And I feel to an extent like I've left the teachers in the lurch and I would have rather have achieved something a little more limited for the full sequence of learning rather than gone into some of the, the depth. On a personal level, I think if you are the more supportive person, the more experienced person in that planning conversation, there is a sense of discipline required an idea that you just have to hold back certain things because now is not the time tempted though you might be to start getting into um, the weeds of different representations that could be used or the, the the slight different advantages between one online program versus another online program for showing base 10 for example and yeah and that's something I'm still learning myself it's it's a having that discipline is difficult. Can I say something really practical as well and quite mundane? I find it really useful when planning, and it sounds obvious, but I've planned in places which don't have these, but to plan somewhere that has a nice big whiteboard and a few whiteboard pens, because how often is it the case that you say, oh, well, I think this, this way of showing this will make sense, or these particular steps for addressing, I don't know, written subtraction, and being able to stand up in front of them and, and, and model it or someone else model it to you and say, yeah, I, I, I see where you're coming from there. And to be able to do it almost in the same way that a teacher might is really quite valuable. So I know that's quite a mundane thing, but having some of the apparatus that you would have in the classroom, and, and that includes manipulatives, of course, if we're talking mathematics, having, having the relevant apparatus so you can act the, the teacher when you need to, to explain things, I think it's quite a, a useful thing to consider. Yeah, that takes me back to last year. And quite a few of my year groups were exploring fractions. And in the PPA room, I left a bunch of two-color counters. And I think there must have been three or four consecutive days where I modeled how I would use these two-color counters to get various different you know, bits of understanding from pupils. And it was much more effective than saying, oh, I think you should use this. Go and have a look at that. I said, okay, well, here's what I would do in this lesson situation. And then I saw them use it in their lessons. And, you know, and then that's something you can build on next time around when you come around. You know, whenever you talk about discipline, I the first thing that came to mind was that I think the opportunities for the conversation to go way off task are directly proportional to the number of people in the group. So say you've got a, a group of five people planning together. If you're the, if you're the person there who's who's there to support people with their with the with their planning, you've really got to make sure that you keep things away from what's happening at the weekend, you know, and what's happening, you know. And I think people must, you know, I know my personality is quite straight down the line, 
but they must think sometimes that I'm just flat out ignoring them because I'll, they'll start talking about something personal and I'll just say, okay, so back to the <laughs> back to the representation here, you know, because like you said, we, we don't have the time. We've maybe got, you know, for one subject, maybe a third of our allotted um, PPA time. And I think, yeah, making sure that we are disciplined, you know, in those you know, wonderful situations where people want to go into the depths of representation selection, you know, definitely, but not equally. I think keeping the keeping the show on the road in terms of we've got an hour, let's make the absolute most of this hour. You know, it's and it's no easy thing, especially if you are not the senior member of the group, you know, because then you might think, well, I don't really want to tread on the toes of my eager partner because those relationships are really important. But I think, yeah, there's a there's a discipline to getting the most from collaborative planning that involves putting personal conversations to one side. You know, I don't know, that sounds really harsh when I'm saying it out loud, but you know, certainly- I'm I, not, Sorry, I know exactly where you're coming from. No, I, I think it would be particularly um, unfair of any listeners to assume you're not talking about this in subtle terms. I mean, it goes without saying that if someone is having a really difficult time or there's a particular classroom issue, and in that moment, you recognize that actually, you know, this takes precedence, that, that it takes precedence over whatever's going on in that conversation. But as a general rule of thumb, if the conversation moves to which is your favorite M&M or your favorite, yeah, <laughs> like, oh, I like, I like the brown M&Ms. I like the red M&Ms. No, it's like, no, okay, yeah, let's, we need to keep this back on topic. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm bad for that, I have to say. And it's something that, yeah, you have to be aware of because they won't thank you if an hour's gone and the planning time hasn't been used effectively. It's obviously tricky depending on the time of day as well. I mean, I've done some of these planning sessions in a PPA um, first thing in the morning and I felt, wow, that was, that was really on it. That was really efficient. We really gained something from that. And then I've had the same session with the same group of teachers at 3.30 till 4.30 and I've thought, goodness me, what have I done wrong here? This hasn't worked in the same way. And it's the same, it's not anyone's fault necessarily. It's just the people are tired. And so, yeah, sometimes we have to work that bit harder to, to be disciplined in that situation. But yeah, managing that and being polite about it. And again, letting people understand, being explicit about it, saying, let's talk about this later. I look forward to it, but let's, let's get this math planning done because... I know you want to be out of the door at a reasonable hour tonight. It's important stuff. So when we're thinking about the foundation subjects, is there anything that you, any experience you've had recently, Chris, that might suggest how we might behave in those situations? Because I think it's slightly easier and slightly more defined in terms of mathematics, perhaps reading, phonics, you know, writing in general. What are we thinking about when we're thinking about when we're planning history? with a group of colleagues, you know, because I sometimes get to listen in those conversations and I give my point of view, but I'm never there to guide the history planning, you know? So I don't know, because you, there's a high likelihood you've experienced this more recently than I have. I'm going to make it sound like subject knowledge isn't the most important thing or one of the most important things about maths planning. It absolutely is. Of course it is. And discussing that and making sure that everyone's fully on board and fully understands, for example, the difference between factors and multiples, whatever you're talking about that day. I, but however, even though that's the case, I think a higher percentage of the time in a foundation subject in particular is spent 
discussing the subject knowledge, just really making sure that people do have a grasp of what you're talking about. So if it's um, ancient Egyptians, it's much more likely the case that people are coming to that planning meeting, the inexperienced colleagues are coming to that planning meeting thinking, I don't really know much about this. And so a much higher percentage of the time is just spent getting to grips with the subject matter itself. So that's that's the first port of call. That's the first central difference between, I would say, math planning and stuff that's more foundation, uh, sorry, the foundation subjects. I think other than that, there's a lot of similarities. Obviously, there's less relating to models and representations in the mathematical sense. I would say that with the foundation subjects, you have to spend a bit more thought on what is obviously, again, you have to think very carefully about the tasks that you're going to use in mathematics, but how you get children to think about mathematics through those tasks. Once you've got a kind of bank of ways of doing things, you can, you, you've got a pretty good idea of, of how that's going to work, or at least you've got something that you can rely upon. How you work that in, you know, a lesson about Mesopotamia is, is a whole different thing. You really have to, there's something just that bit more open-ended about what's going on. You, you have to match the task to the exact thing that you're doing in a way that you still do in mathematics, but even to a much greater extent with history, geography, science, etc. I've probably got people listening now screaming and saying, well, you can't group all foundation subjects together. And that's kind of the case. Here. It's kind of what I'm trying to aim at in that if I'm planning science with collaboratively, often that conversation about how the practical is going to work or what I say practical, how the inquiry is going to work is much more practical. How am I going to use the equipment? Where's it going to go on the desks? How am I going to show children this thing? Am I going to do this in front of them or under the visualizer, for example? Whereas that's not necessarily something that comes up in the same way in history. Really though, it is different for each, each of the foundation subjects. And I could go through all of them one by one, but I have to admit that a lot of the planning conversations that I've undertaken recently have either been mathematics, spelling, little bit of history and geography, but mostly my experiences in mathematics. Yeah, I think there'll be, there'll be matters of pedagogy specific to, for instance, the geography leads planning sessions that will, like you said, differ. And it's being aware of those. I reckon there's also a lot of work avoiding the inclusion of too much hinterland. You know, one of those conversations I was eavesdropping on was about the Normans. And, and so I naturally started talking about the Normans. Oh, did you know that the Normans were Norsemen? And, and did you know this happened? And did you know this happened? And did you know that the Normans also had a, a settlement in, I think it was Sicily? You know, and so I was almost stoking the, the, the fire with as, as much historical feel as I possibly could. And I think, you know, talking to people like Jack Harker, who, you know, know so much about um, sort of medieval history. You know, he really spends a lot of time thinking about what is it that's important and not getting distracted by it. So I think, yeah, that, that, that could perhaps be a big part of collaborative planning is having the wherewithal to really hone it in because yes something like, you know something like history science that i really enjoy learned about in my spare time you know i could very easily get carried away with you know and and end up missing the point of why we were planning in the first place it is it's it's not only just subject specific it's lesson specific so your introduction to a science lesson to the first of a topic is a whole different business in your planning to how you are planning your inquiry 
or how you're doing that final lesson where you're thinking, oh, how do I bring this all together? And equally, like I, I did a planning session where I was with teachers where they asked, oh, can we have some support in planning French? And we just use Rachel, Rachel Hawks. And that is, it's all there. It's planning is there for you. The stuff is there. And because of all that, we, ju we just said, actually, the planning conversation is let's just listen and do a lesson ourselves. Let's just literally look, play a lesson through, pause it at key moments, decide what we're going to talk about. So yeah, and that, that just happens to be how it works for our French curriculum because it's very guided, because there's all that information for us. So the, the planning that you do, in as much as it's tempting to say there are differences between maths and foundation subjects, and there are, I think actually one of the more interesting differences is how you plan based on how prescriptive certain, certain aspects are, how much information you have to go on. It's very different to collaboratively plan something where all you've got is a learning outcome and shared experiences compared to planning something where you've got a whole host of resources and you've got everything, perhaps even lesson plans that you are handed and that you want to adapt and change in order to make it work. So yeah, really, I think how, how tightly prescriptive your resources and what you've been given is, is a key determinant of how your planning conversations go. So then moving on to the perhaps elephant in the room, how can SLT support with collaborative planning? The key thing is, and again, it's just re-emphasizing what we've said already, you need to make sure that your year groups have a mixture of experience and not just a mixture of experience as in this is a teacher with 20 years experience and this is an NQT, and a mixture ideally of experience in that year group. So that is often the key thing because it's one thing to be a relatively experienced teacher who has taught lots and lots of different things. If you are new to year five and you've never taught ancient Greece before, then you've got some pedagogical knowledge on which to rely, but your subject knowledge relating to the ancient Greeks might be no better than the NQT that you're working with. I keep saying NQT, get with the times, Chris. I mean, ECT. Yeah, that's, uh, that's going to take me so long to get out of that habit. NQT still in my head, I'm afraid. Yeah, I've got a delay. I say NQT in my head and then articulate ECT. <laughs> that's, that is a sensible delay. I, I could do with that. There doesn't seem to be much of a delay between my brain saying something and my mouth just firing, unfortunately, <laughs> gets me into trouble fairly frequently. Yeah, I think I, I mentioned time at the start. And I know I'm thinking of the people I know who do the cover and how they really bust a gut to try and make sure that people have the chance to plan with, with their year group partners. You know, but I think, you know, because they've prioritized that this is important. We want to eke out two and a half, maybe three hours sometimes where they can sit down and think about what's going to happen over the next seven days. But I'm also thinking, you know, I'm listening to Lloyd talking about how he's operational deputy head of that right now and how cover is really tough because illness and all the sort of things that have come at us this this term. You know, it's not easy, but in terms of why are we here? What is our main purpose? You know, keep the children safe. Absolutely. 
but to make sure they get the highest quality education possible. And I think one of the ways we do that is giving our teachers time to think about what they do. You know, it goes back full circle. It goes to the, you know, the conversations I was having with Matt Swain when I visited Hawks Farm. You know, it, you could see how fundamental thinking was to everything they did. They thought about what they did. Collaborative planning is about thinking. And I think the best thing that SLT can do is say, we prioritize, we value thinking. And we want you to have that time to get, you know, to have those opportunities to think in a way that is conducive to the provision of a really high quality education. So, Chris, we started this episode searching for five ways that we could get the most out of collaborative planning. Do you think we find them? I think we came to some sort of consensus over what was essential to collaborative planning, the first of which is a mixture of experience so that more experienced colleagues can support less experienced colleagues. We want there to be a sense of general behaviours that are inculcated over time so that planning can be as efficient as it can be. The third thing we'd probably say are as essential as a shared grasp of outcomes and the steps and how to get there for any bit of planning bit more mundane the fourth one which was relevant apparatus and equipment though I say mundane but I think that's essential to a really productive um, planning conversation and the fifth was a sense of discipline and purpose to make sure that that planning conversation always feels like it's um, worth every teacher's time. Excellent and I think if you take that as your starting point what you'll find is that your collaborative planning sessions evolve into something much more productive than I could ever imagine, you know, that you could ever imagine, Chris, because that's what teachers do. They take things, they make them their own, and they surpass all expectations. So, yeah, I think that's a, that's a really good starting point. So all that's left to say, Chris, is thank you very much for joining me. Always a pleasure. And to everyone at home, until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>